So, experiencing the results of our previous lives' actions, this life we have a very good ripening or maturation result in having a precious human life. And as His Holiness the Dalai Lama always says, when there are privileges, there are also responsibilities. So responsibility is not a negative thing. It's different than an obligation or something you have to do that's weighing on you. A responsibility is an opportunity to really do something good for the world and for yourself. And so, let's have a strong determination to use our precious human life properly to create more good causes to be of great benefit in, to sentient beings in this life and in all of our future lives and to aspire to attain full awakening in order to do that most in a most complete way. And so let that be our motivation today. So it's, the coincidences are kind of interesting that on this last day of retreat we're discussing um, Long Chenpa's eight intrusive conditions and eight incompatible propensities that make us waste our precious human life. Because the last day of retreat is the last day of having the schedule and uh, that allows us to go deep, deeper in our practice and to have more qu internal quiet and external quiet. And then tomorrow is going into, you know, slowly transiting, transiting into, you know, more activities. And more activities also means more uh, opportunities for distraction at least external distraction. I think in the retreat you probably had a few distractions that were internal that may not have been expressed externally, but, uh, you know, we work on them inside. And now, uh, you know, transitioning, there's more opportunity for external ones. So I'll just read the ones um, we covered last time, which were the first six of the first set of eight intrusive conditions. And then we will go on from there. And, uh, th you know, may this be a really good uh, preparation and to make us cautious in, now, in how we are transiting to being more active. 
because sometimes the temptation is, you know, and luckily, I mean, the, the discipline at the monastery prevents this, but, but um, for the people who are leaving, you know, the temptation is, you know, head for Starbucks in the steakhouse and, and turn on the, the TV and, you know, turn on the internet and turn on the stereo. People don't have stereos, they have iPads, pods. Pads, pods, I don't know. <laughs> you know, and you want to, you, then you need to catch up with all the news of, of, of what's been happening and then all your family and this and that, and, you know, catch up. You all have piles of email, or if you don't have piles, and most of it's junk mail. And if you don't have piles of email, then you get depressed and you feel like nobody loves you, and then you have to get over that. So it's, it's really good to, to try and keep our mind, uh, you know, in a retreat situation as long as we can. Okay? So precepts are very helpful with that, yeah, as are the monastery guidelines, because, you know, you just try going down that road, <laughs> you know, to McDonald's in Newport, you know, that you've been craving since day one of retreat, you know, the Big Mac. <laughs> Ugh. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's the way I feel, too. <laughs> um, yeah, so very helpful to keep the discipline. Okay, so what we covered last time. Yeah, turmoil from the five emotions. Attachment, anger, confusion, arrogance, and jealousy. Okay, which dominate our mind uh, and make it very difficult to practice. Okay, so as you go through your mail, as you go through your, uh, the news, uh, then, you know, all this stuff is, couldn't arise quite easily, you know, and then you get uh, transited into, transitioned into another world of all of your um, uh, ruminating, yeah. The second one is stupidity, lack of intelligence. So you can't understand the teachings. I don't think you people suffer too much from that. Um, three is being dominated by negative influences, like relying on corrupt teachers or friends who lead us away from the Dharma. Okay, four, laziness. Yeah. And this morning you had to even get up a little 15 minutes earlier because of precepts. What a sacrifice. Yeah. Um, then five is being inundated by the effect of past negative actions. Yeah, so those, you know, happen when we're out of retreat and in retreat, then all the memories Lots, you know, because a lot of our negative actions, they're still roaming around, you know, when we don't feel good about what we've done. Yeah, those negative actions are kind, they're still influencing us. And so, you know, that's a lot of the stuff that comes up during retreat. 
that we have to really work on. And then six is being enslaved to others so that you have no autonomy and the person who dominates you doesn't allow you to practice. Yeah, so that could be, you know, uh, an unhealthy relationship, an unhealthy family dynamic, actual slavery, um, you know, a job that doesn't allow you to breathe, that you're hooked to because uh, you need the finances or whatever it is. Okay, so we went over these six before, so now we'll start with number seven. Seven is seeking protection from dangers. So we only take up the Dharma because of fear of lacking food and shelter in this life, for example. So we have no deep conviction in the teachings, but just practice for material support. Okay? Now this may sound strange, but it's not. Okay? Even in the Buddha's time, uh, there was one doctor, Dr. Chivaka, and he... Uh, you know, loved the Sangha, loved the Dharma. So he told the Buddha, when any, whenever any of your monastics are ill, send them to me. I will treat them, no charge. Okay? And so he did that, and it was incredible what he did. Uh, but then other people in the vicinity heard about it, and they said, oh, we want free medical care too. So we'll just join the Sangha, and then we can get free medical care. So they did that, yeah, and they started going to Dr. Jivaka. And when he learned that these people were faking, um, you know, being monastics, I mean, they took the ordination, but they didn't have the motivation, then he, you know, said, this is awful, and I'm not going to treat people like that. Yeah, they won't get the free medical care. And so then the, um, you know, that established some of the criteria for uh, people taking ordination, you know, to really check people's motivation and making sure that it wasn't just for some worldly reason. In future generations, what has happened a lot in... um, in China, Taiwan, these countries uh, that I learned about when I went there to take ordination is uh, that many people, uh, when they're old, yeah, their kids are grown, their spouses died, they, they're really old, they can't really maintain the household anymore. Um, they used to be people who volunteered at the temple, and, you know, cook lunches and, and things as volunteers. Uh, but now they, they kind of want a nice place to retire, and they're willing to do some cooking and cleaning. So they request ordination, okay? And, and also, you know, they're old, they can't work, they may not have finances, so they want the monastery to support them, and the way to do that is to be ordained. And uh, I remember uh, during my ordination, oh, they spoke really strongly about that. And, uh, you know, if you're here just to, 
you know, free room and board, and because you're old and you want medical care and people to take care of you, you're in the wrong place. That's not the right motivation. Yeah, very strong. Um, they also spoke very strongly, too, because some people, they don't want to really do the monastery training, uh, but they, they want to go chanting at funeral services, yeah, because you get a lot of uh, dana when you go chanting. I mean, people who are grieving tend to be generous, and then, you know, you make it a profession that you go around and you chant at funeral services and receive a lot of donations. But you don't live in the monastery, you don't study, you don't, you know, do live as a monastic, you're living at home kind of doing that. And uh, the ordination masters also spoke very strongly against doing that, you know, that this is not a uh, an opportunity to, to um, you know, yeah, to, to get money to provide for your own li- livelihood um, in an easy way, yeah? Okay, so, you know, to, to really make sure that, um, you know, we, we don't have a bad motivation for our Dharma practice, uh, let alone for ordination, you know? And this is why there's a slow process in, in um, you know, in how we're doing it at the Abbey and people progressing towards ordination to, to really see if they're, they're sincere and to give them the opportunity to develop a very sincere motivation. Um, okay. Then um, number eight is hypocritical practice. Oh, none of us do that. So this is assuming a religious manner, but our mind is dominated by the eight worldly concerns. Okay? So you look, you're wearing the robes, you know, I'm talking in the context of monastics, but this goes for lay practitioners as well. You know, as monastics put on the external things so it's easier to see. Yeah, but lay practitioners also. You carry yourself like you're a spiritual person. You talk very nicely and in a spiritual way to many people. And, you know, so that they admire you. And then they shower donations upon you. Yeah, because they want to create merit. So this is especially dangerous for monastics. Yeah, um, but also for lay people. You know, you want some prominent position or prominent authority, and so you pretend to to be very holy. Yeah, and then you get famous, and you become uh, somebody. Already is the third, no, the second. Second Dorji, the third Dorji Chong, I think we, yeah, we already have him. You can become the fourth, okay, (laughs) you know, and then have a whole flock of disciples around you and, you know, tell them your, your, um, about all your realizations and and everything like that. So it's, it's phony baloney, and this is, is extremely negative karma, okay, 
extremely negative karma to earn your livelihood by pretending to be a holy person when you're not, you know? And this is one of the root downfalls for monastics, um, is uh, lying about our attainments to in order to get a following and become famous and get offerings, you know? So you lose your whole ordination if you do that, if you're lying about it, okay? The story uh, from the Vinaya about this is quite interesting. There was a famine in the land, and, uh, you know, yeah, so there was a famine in the land, and, and after a while, some of uh, monastics in one place, they went to see the Buddha, and the Buddha said, you guys look really well fed. It's like, you know, you're plump and you're rosy and there's a famine and, you know, how, how come? And they said, well, when we went on Pindapot, on alms round, um, we uh, told the people we had high realizations and could do magical things and see things in the past and future and... And um, so they gave us a lot of food, a lot of offerings, and that's why we stayed healthy during this manasseh, during this, uh, you know, famine. They were quite proud of themselves for, for deceiving the lay people. Well, the Buddha was not very happy. Okay, I could just imagine his tone of voice. I'm sure it wasn't, dear sweethearts, Please don't do that again. I don't think he talked to them that way. You know, he gave it to them, and he established one of the root precepts, okay, that if we lie about um, uh, realizations in order to attain offerings or fame or some kind of worldly benefit, then the ordination's gone, okay? There's a lovely story, well, lovely story, um, a story I like, you know, <laughs> that really emphasizes this whole hypocritical thing, yeah? So, you know, and this is easy to do when you're a monastic and you don't have a steady income and you don't have, you know, your own money and you're not, uh, you know, you're dependent on people, okay? So there, there's a, there can become a tendency to kind of butter up to donors, yeah? And you give them little presents, and you flatter them, and you praise them, and you, you know, little things like that, so that you establish a special relationship with those particular donors, you know? And, and then they love having a special relationship with the monastic, so then they give you lots of things, okay? And, and you don't object at all, but your whole reason, I mean, you're brown-nosing and, and just working with a horrible, corrupt motivation, okay? So there's a story of uh, somebody who was uh, doing retreat, you know, in in a cave, of course, so he looked very ascetic, okay? And, uh, uh, you know, he had, you know, he, he was very ascetic looking, okay? 
but he slept until I don't know what hour in the morning. And he, uh, you know, he kind of his session schedule was, you know. Uh, but he knew that one day his benefactor was coming. So he spiffed up his cave. Okay, he cleaned the whole thing out. He got special offerings. He cleaned his altar. He put all these beautiful offerings on the altar. He took out his dorji and bell and drum and probably one of the long horns and got a hat and, you know, and the whole nine yards and wore his clean robes, you know, and, and looked like really professional and was sitting so nicely when his benefactor came to the door. I mean, looking totally holy and ascetic and like a real practitioner. Um, so he was all set for his benefactor to come, you know, for, for that. And then, as he was sitting waiting there, he realized what was going on in his mind, you know, that he was just being phony baloney. And, and he just, he saw it so clearly. And he picked, he, then he started picking up dirt and he threw it his, at his altar <coughs> and he threw it all over the place. Because he wanted, he knew he had to stop the pretense and let his donor, his benefactor see him, you know, as a messy monk. And, uh, you know, and somebody else, maybe his teacher, somebody uh, saw that through some kind of psychic powers and said, oh, now he's practicing Dharma. <laughs> yeah. So... Yeah, so, you know, really trying to be truthful, yeah, and, uh, yeah, and not putting on airs, not pretending to be something that you aren't, because it's so, it's taking advantage of lay people, it, and it's lying that has to do with spirituality, and that is so dangerous, because you inevitably get found out, and sometimes your friends will help you cover up, cover it up. We know all about cover-ups and spiritual things. But, you know, still the scandal's out. And then people lose faith. Yeah? And they say, oh, here's somebody who I trusted as a practitioner. And, you know, they're phony baloney. And that means Buddhism doesn't work. That means all of the Sangha doesn't work. And that's not true. I mean, there's still good monastics, but people lose faith. Yeah. I remember um, one time, yeah, it was during Life as a Western Buddhist nun, and, and the nuns, we got to have breakfast with uh, the Geshis and the, you know, the big people. Um, uh, just us few organizers, you know, just maybe two or three of us, okay? And, uh, and we started asking questions to, to some of the Geshis, you know, how come, you know, this goes on in the monastery? How come that goes on in the monastery? And, you know, we, we were really curious because we knew the precepts, we knew how it's supposed to be, and, and so on. And, um, and they said, you know, why do people always 
pick on the one or two, uh, the actions of one or two bad monastics, and then generalize it to the whole tradition. And they had a good point, you know, but that is what people do. And if you make people lose faith in the Dharma because of your own bad behavior, yeah, then it, it's so harmful to those people because it is so rare to have the karma to meet the Dharma to start with and then to have a precious human life and then to have somebody break that faith through their acting out their own selfish concerns damages people so much, you know. Uh, I mean, we can see it because there's been some scandals in the Buddhist community. And you see how uh, detrimentally it affects people. Yeah. So to really, uh, you know, be very, very strong and not becoming like that. Yeah. But one time, yeah, um, yeah. I was I was asking the incarnation of one of my teachers, and his his uh, attendant was around, and I was saying, how come? Uh, well, it wasn't only me; it was some of the Singaporean guests too. And we were saying, how come? Because when they have the big teachings with His Holiness, there's thousands of people there. So they serve tea and they serve, you know, sometimes, you know, meals and so on. And the young monks are the ones uh, passing out the tea. And I, um, and I specify the tea in particular because it's boiling hot. Yeah? And it's in these tin... Uh, uh, pictures, you know, like this. And God forbid, you know, please God, um, <laughs> that you happen to have to go to the bathroom or something and you're walking down the way when this torrent of young monks are running as fast as they can carrying these pitchers of boiling tea. Okay, and if you don't run into them there, then when they start to pour the tea, because at the tea, at the, his teachings, you are squished in. You are totally squished in. There is, I mean, they have a hard time even walking, because you know, you're kind of almost in somebody else's lap, and somebody is almost in your lap, and you know, seriously. Yeah, it is crowded. And and so they're running, they're trying to get through to pour the tea to everybody, stepping all over you, tripping over things, and, you know, giving you a bath in Tibetan butter tea sometimes. Yeah. And so I was asking Rinpoche, uh, <laughs> How come they do this? You know, why don't we? Because I'm used, you know, I've been in Chinese monasteries, and first of all, they never serve food and beverages in the meditation hall. Never. Okay, that and that's why we don't here either. Okay, but because oh my goodness, um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's distracting and it's chaotic. Anyway, um, so I said, why don't they just train the monks? 
to walk slowly in a more dignified manner and pour things nicely. You know, it's like they're young monks and they should have some training in monastic etiquette and, and do that. Yeah, so I said, why not? So, so yeah, so my teacher's, venerable share of my teacher's attendant, the attendant said, there are thousands of monks there, and they have to get the tea to all of them before the tea gets cold or before the monks get mad because they're thirsty. And that's why they run. Okay. He looked at me and he said, you know, it was like, don't criticize because that's why they do that. So, well, okay. You know, if I, had, if I had control over this, I would do it a different way. But, okay, I, I understand the reasons now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but it's, it's, yeah. Some of you have experienced it. Isn't, isn't it lovely? You just washed your robes, and there were no washing machines. You just wash your robes, and then you have tea all over them yeah and you, and the tea is on you know poured in the sitting space so you anyway yeah and then lunchtime you get doll all over you. <laughs> okay so abandon hypocritical practices it's a waste of time okay then Okay, so that completes the eight intrusive conditions, as well as the ninth one is crackling paper. <laughs> okay. okay, then uh, is the eight incompatible propensities. So here, the first one is being bound by one's worldly commitments. Okay? So you're bound to wealth and pleasures, children, jobs, family commitments, social commitments, and so on, so that you're preoccupied with these and you don't have any time to practice. Okay? So why is this called an incompatible propensity? Because our propensity to be attached to worldly pleasure is is involved here. Okay. So we like these things, we want them, um, you know, and it depends like how involved you are in these things when you make the decision to ordain. You know, um, if you're married and you have kids, it's really hard, you know. You can't just turn around especially if you have young kids, yeah, and just say, well, okay, so long, um, good luck, my ex-spouse, you know, you're becoming a single parent, go get a job, take care of the kids, do everything, you know. Um, uh, well, actually, that's a different example. This example is you don't do that, yeah, this this propensity is you don't do that and 
you know, you're really bound by your family commitments and everything. It's quite interesting. When, uh, you know, when I was the resident teacher at DFF, some people were like really eager um, practicing the Dharma when they were single. As soon as they got married, no, okay. Or as soon as they had kids, of course. I mean, when you have an infant, you, you know, it's difficult. Yeah. Some people, their pets made it difficult because your pet is part of the family and your pet is sick and you cancel going to retreat. Yeah. Um, okay, so, and then you have to work. You know, so lots of people, very difficult for people to come to teachings uh, in a continuous way, to, to do retreats. They sign up to retreats. They really want to go. But then something happens in the family. Something happens at work. Yeah, um, all of a sudden you're on call that weekend when you thought you weren't. Um, you know, all sorts of things. And then uh, social commitments. Yeah. Uh, so especially, you know, with families, you know, your family wants you to be there for certain events and, you know, take a cruise with them in the summer holiday vacation or go, go someplace nice for a family vacation, you know, some five-star place, you know, and they'll even pay for you, um, you know, but... Uh, you know, and and then you feel obliged, and 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 so it just becomes a lot of impediment to actually practicing. Um, one of my my Dharma friends, her her parents were very supportive of her practice, but every Sunday night she had to be at their house for Sunday night family dinner. Okay, and so you know these kinds of attachments and obligations become. A problem. So this doesn't mean you just don't do any of it, okay? Um, we're still members of families, but we uh, let our families know what, you know, our priorities are. We don't say to them, you know, our priorities now are my practice and not you. That's not very nice. Don't say that to your family. But, you know, you you are uh, are clear about what you will attend and what you won't, yeah, and and uh, you still give them love, you give them support, you stay in contact with them, but you're not beholden, um, yeah, as a monastic, as a lay practitioner, it's much more difficult because you're right in the middle of it, and they expect that, and you want to go. They're your family, you're attached to them. You love the Sunday night dinners where everybody gets together and argues and, um, you know, and eats apple. You know, what is it? Mom, apple pie, and... Baseball. Baseball, okay, yeah. Um, yeah, that sure beats what one of the candidates running in our county, he sent out a thing last election. Gods, guns, and Trump. That was why we should vote for him. 
I don't know what God thought about that. You know, did he like the drum, the, the guns idea? Yeah, that doesn't go very well with the, the first, you know, God's first precept, does it? But in our world, who follows that? You know? Anyway, okay, so being bound by one's worldly commitments. Yeah? So we need to be careful what we commit to, yeah? And because uh, it can, yeah. But like I said, our, you know, you, we, yeah, we have to let our family know that we still care about them. And, you know, as a monastic, but we, the way we express that care sometimes is not the way we used to express it. You know, because some families, uh, you know, family dinner, what, what happens? You take out the beer. Yeah, you take out the alcohol and you're expected to join the family. And, yeah, getting a little tipsy. Uh, you know, so you have, you know, you, you let people know. Or they want to take you out to one of those movies that have violence and sex. I mean, that's what people do for entertainment. But then you know, as soon as you come back and you try and sit down and meditate, what's going through your mind? The images of what you saw in the movie. It's true, isn't it? When you see a movie? So, um, yeah. Okay, then the, the second incompatible propensity is flagrant depravity, having a bad character and lacking humanity. Very clearly, this is going to make us waste our precious human life. Okay, so, uh, yeah, just having a bad character. We like to milk people for whatever we can get out of them. Okay, so whether it's money or love or sex or status, our whole thing in life is you know, how to get something out of others uh, without giving anything back or giving the minimal back and with a very cold heart, not really ca caring about the effect of our actions on others. Okay. Um, yeah, so a bad character and a lack of humanity. Unfortunately, we see this in many public figures nowadays. Oh, you want to know what the latest scandal is? I haven't told you the news in a while. Okay, so, um, yeah. <laughs> so, this, this is a good one. So, I won't mention his name, okay, but he's 25 years old, and he's a congressman from Georgia. North Carolina, North Carolina, excuse me. Okay, so, um, so he, you know, he's a first-term congressperson, and uh, he is in the lineage of um, Matt Katz and um, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren, how do you say her name, Bo Bobert, 
and um, you know that that whole and oh and dear Jim Jordan, okay. So she's he's in their lineage, okay. But he took it a step further and said, you know, I came to Washington, and all you know, you people won't believe how corrupt and degenerate it is here. You know, the Congress people are having orgies, they're taking drugs, you know, crack, and they have these parties that they invite people to where they, you know, just have flagrant sexual relationships and orgies. So he said that. Okay. Now, if he had said it only about the Democrats, the Republicans would have been fine. <laughs> but he didn't. He said it about the Republicans, too. Yeah. So they weren't very happy. Yeah. Um, and, and the big joke now is, you know, so many of the congressmen, the people in Congress and Senate, are in their 70s and 80s. <laughs> So one one person said, "Wow, uh, what's his name? Chuck Grassley? Or yeah, yeah Chuck? Yeah, he's eighty some, eighty seven, or you know." <laughs> and they said, "If you know, oh, if he was going to orgies and taking crack, he's a lot more with it than I thought he was." <laughs> Okay, so the depravity, I'm not sure, you know, if it's the people who he, this guy thinks are doing that or if it's him because he's imagining it and he's 25 and he's waiting to get until he's 75 so he can go to the parties. Um, yeah, okay. But, um, you know, that's not a nice thing to say anyway. Yeah, is it? It's really not a nice thing. Um, but he, he loves saying those kinds of things. He just, you know, as much as he can, um, you know, he, he's, he's applying for, um, well, well, Ron Santos is already Trump 2.0, and this guy wants to be Trump 3.0. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Okay, so we should not, you know, if we're fragrantly depraved, depraved, we're wasting our life, yeah? And we're also creating a ton of negative karma for, for future lives. Yeah. So when we see people who are depraved, we should not say, oh, oh, you know, well, you know, wouldn't it be nice if somebody killed them or, you know, did something awful so they'd stop doing that. We shouldn't wish them harm. But then it can be tempting. Oh, I hope they burn in hell. Karma will catch up with them. In their future life, they'll suffer, and then, you know, karma will get even for what they're doing. No, wishing pain on anybody is, is not the kind of quality of mind that we're trying to develop as practitioners. Yeah, we, what we should pray for instead, you know, pray that they have a good rebirth 
and that they then can have the wisdom and intelligence to discriminate what to practice and what to abandon, and then they do a lot of purification so that they don't have to experience the results of all these, of the past depravity. Depravity, depravity, you know? Gravity, gravity, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, that they, they, they don't have to experience those results, you know? So, because uh, I've heard sometimes people say, oh, I hope, you know, they'll suffer, their karma will get them. Ah, uh, that's just, you know, that's, that's not the kind of mind we, we want to cultivate. Okay, the third one, this one we suffer from. Okay, lack of dissatisfaction with samsara. Yeah? We're not dissatisfied. We learn about the 12 links. Isn't that a nice intellectual framework to talk about how ignorance creates karma and karma creates rebirth? And, you know, and, and uh, there's, uh, you know, four of this and three of that, and samsara is really bad. Uh, let's go out for lunch. Okay. We, we don't we aren't completely dissatisfied with samsara. And this is difficult, you know, this is really difficult. And that's why the the meditations on the disadvantages of samsara, the meditations on death and impermanence, the meditations on the foulness of the body, you know, why these meditations are so important you know, why it's important to see in our lives that we can't get everything we want. And what that does to us, you know, it's not like we say, oh, I can't get everything I want, that's fine. No, the, the, the suffering, the dissatisfaction that it creates, the jealousy we, you know, and jealousy is painful. Yeah, the painful jealousy that we have for people who, who get what we want but can't get. Okay, the pain we have when we get something we want, you know, and then it isn't as good as we thought or we're separated from it again. You know, you finally met Buddha boy, you know, or Princess Charming. And, and, you know, and you think you've got it all made, and they write it up in the New York Times under the, the wedding, you know, announcement, things about how you met and how you fell in love, and then they have pictures of the wedding and, you know, everything. So, yeah. And, and then it's not like you thought it was going to be. Yeah. Or your partner gets sick. Yeah. And, and you become a widow or a widower, at, you know, two months after the, the wedding or two years after the wedding. Or, I mean, all sorts of things happen where we're separated from what we like. Yeah. And then uh, getting all the problems we don't like. How we try so hard yeah, not to, to avoid certain things. And they come anyway, like aging, like sickness, like death. 
Yeah, we do all we can. Yeah, we even buy life insurance policies. But we, we aren't even the beneficiaries of our own life insurance policy. Somebody else gets the dough. <laughs> yeah. And they go out and spend, spend it in a way that we may not like. It's true, isn't it? You don't know what, you, what your beneficiaries are going to do with the money. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, and, and you're not dead to control. I mean, you're not alive to con to control it. Yeah, so all sorts of problems coming, and we don't realize this. We just, you know, we say yes, there's problems, but the problem is always outside. That's the source of the problem. It's always outside. It has nothing to do with changing my attitude. Nothing to do with changing my expectations. <laughs> Nothing to do with abandoning even one degree of my self-centeredness. Yeah? But if we can see the disadvantages of samsara, then we can actually, we actually become happier in this life. Yeah? Because we aren't running around chasing all the things that are going to make us more unhappy because we can't get them or we lose them after we get them, or because they aren't what, you know, the advertisement was. Yeah. But, uh, and so by not seeing the disadvantages of, of samsara, we're actually more miserable in this lifetime. And we, you know, do all sorts of negative actions that create the, the causes of pain in future lifetimes. Now, some of you are looking a little bit puzzled. What do you mean you're more unhappy, you're more happier in this life if you, if you know about the disadvantages of samsara and you start to give up some of the, those attachments and expectations? What, what do you mean that you're happier? Those are the things that make me happy. Yeah? Why should I give them up? I like my friends. I like my partners. I like chocolate chip cookies. I like, you know, my stereo and my iPad and iPod and, and you know, stereos. That, that's for the crowd that goes to the orgies. They're the <laughs> <laughs> that's their generation, you know? Okay. Now stereos are vintage, you know, like Jeffrey was saying. So, um, okay. so you know, why I like those things. They bring me happiness. I want to go on a cruise. You know, I could be with all my friends and get COVID all together, you know. Um, yeah, I like these things. I, I, want, I want these pleasures. And they make me happy. And if I don't have them, what else am I, you know, you're telling me that I'm supposed to spend my whole life miserable, lonely, unloved, with nobody else to love, nobody to care for me, unappreciated. I'm supposed to just be, you know, an old maid or an old man, you know, sitting on my doorstep smoking a pipe or, you know, Marlboro cigarettes or what do women smoke? 
you know. What? <laughs> Those of you who know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, because there's certain how they market it, you know. The, huh? Vape, you vape. Oh, yeah, smoking is, you know, the people in Washington who go to orgies. <laughs> Vaping is too modern, you know. So, you know, where were we? Um, yeah, you know, vaping gives me pleasure, and you're telling me I shouldn't vape? <laughs> do you vape, or do you go vaping? Or do you make vaping? What's the proper verb? You vape. Okay. So you can vape, it's, it's, a, it's a word, a, a noun. Yeah, you can vape, or you can go vaping with your friends. Huh? <laughs> okay, anyway. <laughs> so. <laughs> okay, I just had an image in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Chuck Grousley, Nancy Pelosi, <laughs> yeah, Don, Donald Trump. <laughs> you know. Yeah, they're all, okay, this is really interesting. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, Mitch McConnell, how could I forget Mitch? <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, everybody. <laughs> As long as they, we don't raise taxes on this, <laughs> it's okay. Um, okay. Yeah, so seeing the disadvantages of samsara is really essential to want to practice virtue and abandon non-virtue. Otherwise, what happens is we're just trying to tweak our samsara, you know, make it a little bit better. Yeah, and and then we spend our lives trying to do that, you know. If I could only have this, if I could only have that, you know, make our samsara better. Yeah, but we're still, we still have to age, get sick, and die. Yeah, that I mean that's then there's no way to avoid that, except to get out of samsara. Yeah, to generate that wisdom and to generate, to really sincerely, you know, generate that wisdom, we have to have an intense aspiration to generate it, you know. And that's why the renouncing the dukkha of samsara and aspiring for liberation, why they're so important, you know. Because if you don't have that intense aspiration, then, you know, putting in the effort to study about emptiness, spending the time to meditate, 
on it, you know, to to gain samadhi, you know, then you you just don't do all that stuff because it's so much more fun going out vaping with your friends or going to vape or <laughs> whatever you do. Um, yeah? Okay. So, uh, the, you know, when you meditate on the defects of samsara, it definitely makes the mind more sober. Okay? But that sobriety, that lack of, oh, this is so exciting, guess what I get to do? Um, it's actually a lot nicer in your life. You know, we usually think that giddiness is, is you know, look what I have to look forward to, what's happening, what just happened. But we think that that's like overwhelming joy. But actually, it's exhausting at the end, isn't it? Yeah. You, you go out and you play out all your giddiness and you come home and remember it and then... I need to rest, you know. I'm tired. So, um, yeah, meditating on the defects of, of samsara um, is very, very helpful because it makes the mind so much more peaceful. Yeah. Then somebody comes and, and, and calls you a name or, or whatever. You know, you don't care about that. Because you know that the chief thing in your mind is, is you know, you want to pra- you want to develop that wisdom. You want to develop, you want to transform your mind so that you can have actual happiness. Yeah, and and you know that those other things uh, aren't going to give it to you, and that you're just going to get distracted. Okay, but all, this understanding comes through repeated meditation. Yeah. If you don't do the repeated meditation so that you actually see the disadvantages of these things, and if instead you only know the disadvantages intellectually, then it's very tempting to start shooting yourself. Yeah. I shouldn't go to the movies. I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't be attracted to somebody. I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I shouldn't. And then you start pushing yourself. Oh, I want that extra, that extra cookie. There it is. No, I can't have it. I'm already done see it. But inside your mind is like, oh, but I want that cookie. I want that cookie. I want that cookie. Why do I have to? Your, your mind is totally unpeaceful, but you're, you're being a slave master to yourself in, in, in how you practice the Dharma. That is because we only know these defects intellectually. In our heart, we don't really believe them. So what's going to help it sink into our heart so that we really see th- that they're true? Yeah, that samsara is not a pleasure grove, you know. The only way to get there is by repeated meditation. And not repeated meditation of, well, there's eight disadvantages to be a a human being. One is this and two and that. Yeah. 
that's not going to do it, you know. Or even thinking, oh, yeah, you know, there's, there's these eight. Well, I am holding five fingers. I should hold them. Eight fingers. You know, there's these eight. And I see, oh, yeah, so-and-so suffers from sickness, so-and-so from aging, so-and-so from, from a broken relationship. Oh, they all suffer. But not me. I'm going to avoid that. It's not going to happen to me. And that happens because we don't relate what we're studying to our life. We relate it only to other people's lives or only in an intellectual manner. So we really have to sit there and imagine ourselves being really sick. Imagine ourselves being old. Yeah, they, they, they say that when you're young, you know, you can't imagine what you look like when, when you're old and that if you were to suddenly look in the mirror and see what you're going to look like when you're old, that you would be horrified. Yeah. Well, let me tell you, you don't have to be young to be horrified. It's <laughs> what you see in the mirror. <laughs> okay. It's like, who is that? Yeah. And, or, you know, you go and you look at, at old pictures of yourself. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I still look like that. <laughs> and then you look in the mirror, it's like... There's an app where you can see yourself uh, uh, 50 years from your, from your... Uh, oh, there's an app where you can do it. Oh, okay. Little kids love to do that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, when you're five, it's exciting. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. But the only way, really, to get there is to, you know... Apply it to ourselves. Imagine being in that situation. Yeah? And thinking, I mean, whatever you read about, whatever you see, think that could happen to me. I mean, people in Ukraine, okay, Zelensky knew what was going to happen. Yeah, you could tell by how he tried to prepare. Okay? But most people, a week before the invasion, they were sitting outside enjoying their, their lattes, yeah? And they didn't think that Putin was going to invade. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of, you know, things can change extremely quickly, yeah? Nobody saw 911 uh, coming, yeah? Then all of a sudden, boom, yeah, there it is. Car accidents. Nobody thinks, well, today I'm going to, you know, get in a car accident and become quadriplegic. Nobody thinks that, but it happens, you know. So, so we have to do something to overcome this mind that feels um, immortal. Yeah? That immortal mind, if it doesn't happen to me, or if it should, per chance, maybe it's in 500 years from now. And, uh, and, you know, and there's always delay, so it may not be until 5,000 years from now. You know? 
So we have to really work at this in, in our practice. Yeah. One, one story that really sticks in my mind about this, well, there's a few stories, um, but one is I read the biography of one woman who, she's uh, Chinese, her father was one of the big uh, tycoons when China was modernizing in the Republican era. And so her family, you know, lived in a mansion and they had all these antique Chinese things and the top of of society. And then, um, you know, the Republican era happened, but it happened, but it only lasted a few years. And then there was the Civil War and the communists took over. Well, when the communists took over, you know, they walked into her, the mansion that her, her house, you know, her family had, and destroyed everything. And during the Cultural Revolution, destroyed. And then her, who was at the top of society, was thrown in prison just because she was rich. She was bourgeois, okay? So she got thrown in prison for I don't know how long, you know, years and years and years. And, you know, she was saying that she could see that the people uh, who died in prison did not have real strong minds. They could not endure suffering, and they were still longing for what they lost. Yeah. Um, but she somehow dealt with it mentally, and she managed to live through it at least long enough to write this book. But it made me really think, you know, you can be at the top of society one minute, minute and then there's a change in government. Yeah, I, you, you know, some of you have experienced that in your own life. Yeah. And uh, and then you lose everything, and you have to make a new life for yourself. Uh, so this this is the nature of samsara. And uh, you know we're not born with a nice uh, uh, timesheet. You know. So okay, in one year from now, yeah, there will be uh, you know a massive earthquake that will, you know, like in Seattle, you know, there's a huge, they've done studies and they think there's a huge uh, fault in the ocean outside of Seattle. And some of the geologists say that there's been times in the past where there's been such a big earthquake there that the salt water from the ocean, you know, completely came and, and, you know, went all over what is now Seattle down to Tacoma, even down to, uh, I think, Northern California. Uh, and they say if another one happens like that, um, you're going to get a tsunami that within minutes will be to up to I-5 in, you know, across to I-5 in Seattle. You know, those of you who are Seattleites. So, or were Seattleites, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, it's not like, it's like, oh, this morning, okay, it's our last day before the big tsunami, 
you know, and we live in, um, where did I used to live? Magnolia? Yeah, I live in Magnolia, or I live in, in Queen Anne, yeah, and, uh, you know, we're going to be um, swimming tomorrow. Uh, you know, you don't get a, a, an advance um, calendar of what's going to happen in your life. Okay, number four, absence of faith in the Dharma or in the Dharma teacher. Okay, so you, you see here, I mean, in, interesting, yeah? You're bound by royalty commitments. You might get over that. You're flagrantly depraved. You get over that. Then you have no satisfaction, dissatisfaction in samsara. Yeah. So you get, you get past those, and then what do you have? No faith. Yeah. Your mind goes into a Dharma teaching. Yeah. Your spirit, you have some spiritual something, you know, but what are these guys talking about? Yeah. In my first Dharma, Dharma retreat, you know, because remember I was the hot stuff with the long hair and my Indian stuff and earrings going in there. And it's like, there's a woman with a shaved head and a guy wearing a skirt. Yeah, what's the story here? Yeah, and you know, and then I see, yeah, and then they start telling you, um, you know, you should be so happy that you're not born in the hell realms or hunger ghost realm or animal realm, and you're going, huh? I don't even believe, well, animals I believe exist. But uh, rebirth? What kind of nonsense is that? Yeah? Or you look and, yeah, that Dharma teacher, they don't look very holy. Yeah. Dharma teachers, they should look, they should look like that guy. No, no, not like, uh, but the, the guy in, uh, in Singapore. Yeah, you know who I'm talking to? So the guy who was going to the casinos and so on, um, but he wears this old Chinese, he, I mean, he, he's making himself out to look like one of the old Chinese sages with the garments, with the, the beard, yeah, and he, growing his eyebrows out. Now, I want to know how you grow your eyebrows long. Huh? Oh. So I, that, I, I have to train these all the time with these BMIs. Yeah, yeah, because they they come down and he has them braided, yeah. and like this. Hair, Hair extension? Yeah. Really? So they're all phony? Yeah. yeah. Well, he really pulled it. I mean, yeah, and he, it, you know, he he looked quite quite holy, you know, all these things. Don't you think? I mean, especially all the setup for pujas and looked really floating in the clouds. Yeah, 
But, okay, anyway, I don't want to pick on that guy. <laughs> you know, I'm, but um, I don't even know him, so it's kind of unfair to pick at him. Pick at him. But I'm, look, I'm talking about just the image of, of that, not that person. Anyway, uh, but, you know, you, anyway, you, you go in, you're the kind of person who wants to see somebody like that because that's what a holy person looks like. Yeah, and, um, you know, they're rolling their eyes back. Yeah, half in samadhi all the time. Um, and you say, oh, what's this person talking about? They don't look holy. Yeah. And anyway, what they're teaching is, this is superstition. Yeah. And, and so no faith in either the, the Buddha's teachings or in the Dharma teacher. You know, maybe the teachings are okay, but this teacher, you know, they grew up with Mickey Mouse just like me. You know, uh, they don't know anything. Or the, the Buddha's teachings, oh, this is for people in ancient, ancient times. Yeah. It's for an ancient times, you know. We don't do that. What you you want me to, you know, go into uh, go into downtown Newport, yeah, on Pindapot, yeah. You think they're going to give me anything? I'll stand outside the McDonald's all day. <laughs> okay, so. Um, having no faith in the Dharma. Just the mind is super skeptical. What about this? What about that? And it's not really interested in, in getting the answers. It's the skeptical mind that wants to put forth the questions and say to the other person, it's your job to prove it to me, but whatever you say, I'm not going to believe Okay, so this kind of cynical mind, yeah, I don't know if any of you've had it. I've, I had it at one period in my life, you know? So, yeah, so no faith. Or, or not very much faith, you know? When, when, when you get sick, then you have tons of faith. You run to the temple, you make offerings, you say Namo Ami Tofu, Medicine Buddha Mantra, you know, you light candles. You know, as soon as you're well, forget it. Okay. Okay, so that's number four. So we're going to stop here, yeah, uh, for today. It's, yeah, I know it's a little bit early, but we have something else we're going to do. We have time for, for one or two questions. If anybody has anything. Long Chenpa. Long Chenpa. He's a very um, renowned Nyingma master. So, yeah, people can copy. You have a nice copy of it. You can... Yeah, my, my copy's a little bit crinkled. Um, okay. Yeah. So it's, it's good to reflect on these and, you know.
No questions? Okay, then we'll call it a day. <laughs>